0: The food pantry has a laptop, and I connected it to internet for the first time, I guess maybe ever, today. Uh, It's installing update 5 of 24 on the required software updates for Microsoft. Oh, man. Your sermon leader, rector, reverend, Deacon elder, what the hell is a pastor? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life in set-apart ministry. Each week, we sit down to talk about our experiences and challenges as pastors doing small-town ministry during uncertain times. Join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do, and how to do it as best we can. So listeners, during this COVID-19 time, we have both had weeks. They're real similar to the weeks we've had in the past, so we're not going to talk about them. It's the week after Easter. We don't need to talk about what pastors do the week after Easter. So instead, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. So Ethan, tell us something about the Holy Spirit. Get us started.
1: Okay, um, how about something like a a 90-second history lesson? How do you feel about that? Okay. Um, I remember being in uh, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer class with you, and I remember Josiah Young, Dr. Josiah Young, making a comment about um, Bonhoeffer's pneumatology, which is just the fancy word for theology, of the Holy Spirit. And I remember him saying uh, that Bonhoeffer has a really weak pneumatology, meaning that it's not really developed super well, he, he doesn't really have clear moments where where he understands the working of the Holy Spirit, stuff like that. And then he said, but that's okay, I mean it's not okay, but that's okay because most of Western theology has a really diminished." Theology of the Holy Spirit when you compare it to kind of the Christian theology of the East, um, and then he said, you know, except for John Wesley, <laughs> and I uh, find that to be uh, actually rather true in that up until maybe the middle of the twentieth century, um, there isn't a ton of what I would call really creative and and kind of groundbreaking. Like like, like new, innovative reflection on the Holy Spirit. It seems to just be in the West, a lot of um, kind of commentary on Augustine and his theology of the Holy spirit and and sort of a lot of restating of of some of those older ways of talking about it and, and maybe different keys. and And Bonhoeffer is, is as an early twentieth century theologian. Is one who who also doesn't really reflect on that,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and and so like right around you know the kind of the middle of the 20th century, with uh, um, some of the liberation theologians and um, folks like uh, Moltmann and 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 folks who are who are discovering Eastern you know Orthodox theology uh, in their own language, um, we now see this kind of movement in Western theology. Where, where the Holy Spirit is really being reflected on in new ways and, and are often being reflected on in like really exciting ways, like from a feminist or womanist perspective or from that liberation perspective or, or so on and so forth. So, I guess, the, why, why do I say all of this? I say all of this because I think that for many Protestants, um, the Holy Spirit... Uh, historically, has not been a terribly active force in the way Protestants tend to describe things like creation, salvation, and like eschatology. Yeah. like like it's one of those things that we kind of put over here because most Protestant ways of talking about that just uh, um, um, are are uh, uh, subject to that kind of diminished. Um, pneumatology that that doesn't have a ton of development. Um, so, for what I mean by that, for example, is is if you are kind of a a a for 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 the average um, North American uh, person who attends an evangelical church or a mainstream Protestant church or or a mainline Protestant church, um, you you probably understand salvation an in, in atonement in some way that sounds a little bit like Jesus dies for my sins on the cross, right? In some form or another. Um, and you have the ability to describe all of that without once talking about the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And um, where where in Eastern Christianity or in, in you know, in, in now more recent, um, maybe developed, western theology that is not what we do like we we are able to describe the holy spirit in different ways or if you're a methodist and know you're a methodist and and really paid attention in methodist confirmation you also are able to to use the to talk about the holy spirit a little better that is my opening line (laughs) it's not a great line but it's my it's what i'm using
0: (laughs) yeah no and i think that's good because i think that um I think that most people aren't aware of the weakness of their pneumatology, right? Like, it's just we're, they they don't even know that they don't know what the spirit is doing or, or like, what they think the spirit is or what the spirit's role is or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, So, I think it's good to kind of start off with that history lesson. Uh, Yeah. So, it's saying that like Methodists have a have a little bit better of a pneumatology if they paid attention in confirmation class. To me that points to um Wesley's understanding of grace and grace being kind of the the work of the spirit. Does that sound right to you? Is Grace the work of the spirit or is Grace something else?
1: Um I think I think John Wesley, it sounds right to me that, that for John Wesley there is um the outpouring of the Holy spirit that kind of happens after the work of Christ on earth um, is sort of directly connected to the outpouring of, of God's grace. So like, like the first thing I think of is prevenient grace, right? Mm -hmm. And John Wesley's understanding of grace listeners, John Wesley spoke of prevenient grace, which is this sort of um, uh, what, what you almost might call a cosmic dimension of Wesley's thought where, because of the work of jesus christ now there is a a a kind of constant um overflow and outpouring of god's kind of healing and renewing and redemptive energy uh if you will on the entire world and so uh because of the work of jesus it is not possible for any aspect of creation to um fail to be uh to encounter god's grace in some way yeah Uh, grace is
0: the prevenient grace is the grace that goes before so before you have been justified before before you've had any type of conversion experience or even before you're promised in baptism god's grace is encountering you from the very beginning whether you like it or not (laughs)
1: Absolutely, and and this is very good news. This is sort of um, does prevenient grace save? Well, in Wesley's thought, no. Um, prevenient grace is sort of the 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 given, the 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 good given of 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 create of of uh, of God's redemptive work. Like uh, there is no since Jesus Christ, there is no way you can be born. And, and live and move outside of God's uh, uh, outside of some form of God's salvific grace mm-hmm.
0: um, and provenient grace is the grace that prepares you for salvation
1: right right um, it, it's it's uh, the the thing that renews and and frees the will just enough to be able to be saved
0: yeah. as,
1: as John Wesley might put it
0: and it and it feeds into usually we talk about three types of grace when we're talking about wesleyan grace there's prevenient justifying and sanctifying there's also a fourth one in there that's like converting or convicting grace so the the grace that like makes you aware of your need to be saved and then justifying grace that like enacts that salvation and sanctifying grace which is what carries us all on to perfection and if i were to talk about it um I would say that like, like all that is the spirit to me, right? The spirit Mm -hmm. is what is moving within us before we even know of God and know, know that we need to be uh, justified. And the spirit is the one that convicts us. Um, And justifying grace is tricky. I don't really know. I get very confused about that one but I feel like the Spirit is involved in communicating that justifying grace to us. And then the Spirit working within us is, is the process of sanctification to gain the mind of Christ. And so here, like for me, Moltmann talks about uh, pneumatological Christology and Christological pneumatology. Like he just ties the, the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit together really closely where you really almost can't talk about one without the other. And mm-hmm. I feel that way, in grace like if we're talking about prevenient grace we're talking about like the grace that's in the world which is almost like the work of the word as well as the work of the spirit kind of continually moving in the world um and then like justifying grace for sure is something that like both the spirit uh the spirit communicates to us the work of the sun um and then in sanctifying grace, like, the, the Spirit is working in us so that we might have the mind of Christ. And it, like, it, it kind of goes back to our Christology conversation where, uh, it, like, it's so hard to talk about the members of the Trinity without kind of talking about what they do or what their role is. But it, in talking about that, you kind of make them into, like, tools of the Father, and that's not what we want to do and so it it takes a lot of work to have a thought of the spirit like on the spirit's own even in like wesleyan
1: theology sure sure and and there's a part of me that also says you know um uh properly trinitarian theology does does not try really hard to do that like like maybe uh an attempt maybe we loosely try to talk about what the persons of the trinity do on their own you know you know what i mean like mm-hmm. because so so i guess what i'm saying is it's like the one of the things that a, that trinitarian thought you know tries to get across is that while it is true that the persons of the trinity are distinct they also all kind of dwell within each other and they 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 don't they 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 do things with one will
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know what I mean? And so, like, yes, there, there is a sense in which we, we a, a robust pneumatology should be able to speak of the work of the Holy Spirit in a good and distinct way, while at the same time, uh, not so distinct that we're able to talk about what the Holy Spirit does that the others do not, right? you know, at all. And, th- and I think that's when things get kind of tricky. It's that kind of dialectic. It's that balance and, and, and tension and, and stuff like that. Um, but I agree with you, Joe. I think, and this is part of my Wesleyan instinct, I think um, closely associating the spirit with grace is sort of deeply Wesleyan because there is the sense in which God's grace in Wesleyan thought is, is really just sort of God's life.
2: Mm. you know god's
1: god's uh, um triune life or 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 the kind of outpouring of who god is and and the holy spirit is sort of that that member of the trinity that person of the trinity that is um facing outward could we put mm. it that way mm. um, where uh this is not necessarily a wesleyan phrase but uh there's a a um a, an Eastern Orthodox theologian named Dimitri Stanlau, who when he reflects on the Trinity uh, talks about, uh, he, this is an analogy he uses, so it's not a perfect analogy, but, but I understand what he's saying. Talks about how in, in the same way that a child um, opens the love of a couple outward. Um, so like there's, if you're a couple, and you have a child um prior to that child there there is a sense in which the couple's love is closed on each other um it's not that they can't love other people but as a couple they they love each other and they might they might not as a couple love other people um but but having a child opens that love that then that couple as a couple uh, enters into a loving relationship with another, uh, and 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 then that couple's love is open. Dimitri Stanlaw kind of says that that is that is sort of the role of the spirit is is the the opening up of the divine love,
2: hmm.
1: um, and and in a, in that way, in a similar way, um, and I understand that. Like I read that right as uh, Beth and I were starting to try to get pregnant. And so there's a part of me that was like, yeah, okay, I, I can understand that. Um, and that's, of course, an imperfect analogy, and it doesn't work for everybody, and I understand. But I, but I kind of get what he's saying. You know, the Spirit's, What the Spirit does is, is open up the Trinity um, and, the, and God's life, the grace of God's life, and, and, and then sort of pours that life out on uh on all of creation and which is one of the reasons why kind of having the spirit dwell in us is the language we use when we talk about entering into the divine life Mm. um uh we might be swept up if you will in in god's loving life by the spirit maybe that's what the spirit does by opening up god's life the spirit um Uh, when the spirit dwells within us and transforms us and communicates the character of God to us, we are then kind of mystically, if you will, drawn into that opened life of God.
0: Yeah. I like that. Do we want to talk about the filioque now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. What is that?
0: That is the controversy that splits the, the Eastern church from the Western church. And it's whether the spirit proceeds from both the father and the son or whether, uh, the spirit proceeds solely from the father.
1: Yes. Yes. So what do you think?
0: I, you know, Ian and I have fights over this and I, but I actually have stopped caring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, uh, but I, I like the idea of, uh, like, I, I honestly don't love that language either way, but if we're going to talk about God the Father as the source, as the first person of the Trinity as, as the source, then it makes sense to me that the Son and the Spirit should proceed just from the source, because there's not a reason for the Son to be involved in that, like.
1: And, and it's so
0: hard just to talk about that without, like, ranking members of the Trinity, um, but, I, like, I feel like saying, and of the Son, but then, then the Spirit dies in the Gospel of John, like, is breathed out by Jesus onto his disciples, right? Like, that's our Gospel passage for the Sunday. Uh, and so, do it, like, there is a real way in which the Son communicates the Spirit to the disciples. So uh yeah uh, that's where i get that's the loop that i get stuck in is is do we talk about this in the way that we encounter god well like given the gospel witness the way that we encounter the spirit is through the son then again on pentecost the spirit just shows up without the son so uh, who who knows what do you think
1: hmm so so somebody might ask um why this kind of controversy is important and uh, ultimately, it's it's sort of a doctrine thing, right? Like, like yes, there are important things. There are important implications in both sets of it. So, listeners, the Eastern Church goes with, you know, this idea that, that the Son and the Spirit all come from the Father, and the Western Church goes with this idea that the Spirit proceeds both from the Father and the Son, and, and yada, yada, yada. Uh, you might have said that. I'm sorry if you did, and I completely repeated it. I'm no, my. No, I
0: didn't say which which was which. So you're good.
1: Good. good. Awesome. Um, I think that. Um, well, I mean, my first instinct is to say who who fucking cares, but <laughs> 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 I I the don't see where I'm at too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't see. I I see why um too great of an importance put on the notion that the spirit proceeds both from the father and the son i can see why that would lead to a diminished western pneumatology yeah maybe maybe that's my take on it maybe that's my hot take on it i can see i can see how that idea has contributed to our western christian traditions diminish pneumatology because because it becomes difficult to see um how the spirit is not a lesser part of the trinity right now now somebody i think can make the same claim on the other way well if the father is the source of both the son and the spirit how can we not come to the conclusion that the father is more important than the son of the spirit? Sure. I I understand that, that perspective as well. I think that there is more, um, what I'm going to say is more robust work done on that to kind of demonstrate that um, where, where patristic theologians who are, who are insist on the, on the um, what they would call the monarchy of the father, uh, we don't really like to use that language now, but but at the time that language is fine. Like like it's just for them, monarchy was just the, the literal Greek word for for one source. you know, m- mono you know <laughs> like, like that's that's all what they mean by that. Um, like like Gregory of Nazianzus in his orations on the Trinity, when he's reflecting on the the monarchy of the father would say all what all this means is that the father's mode of divinity is in is the begetter and the son's mode of divinity is the begotten it, it it's not it's not one is worse than the other because all of this happens in in an instant eternally like like does the father come first no you've actually misunderstood it's it, it's not a chronology right you know it's it's the it's a because it's just an eternal happening um, it, it just so happens that 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 the father is um, the source of the other two but that's just in terms of how we would understand the relationship of the persons of the Trinity like like they're all eternal they all are happen in an instant the father doesn't come first in a chronolo- chronological order it's just the way we do it um, I actually you see and once again like in order to talk about this i have to turn to eastern theology because right. there's just not a ton of western theology that that deals with this well you know like like bolgakov a russian eastern thinker when he reflects on this talks about the father as um, as as a god's uh, abyss that's the language Ooh. he uses the the abyss of of uh, what, how does he put it uh the father is kind of the dark abyss you know the 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 apophatic unknowing abyss hmm.
2: uh
1: and then the son as the begotten is the is the image of the father and so the son is what the father looks like uh even though we can't really gaze upon the father you know and then and then the the spirit is that which reveals the image, the light that shines on, on the image. Um, uh, Bolgakov also, by the way, this is super nerdy, you, you're the only one that's going to like this. Uh, <laughs> Bogekov it, it, it also says that um, uh, the father, um, well, well, so there's this fancy word listeners called kenosis, which is this uh, Greek word that's found in the book of Philippians that Paul uses to talk about the incarnation the the self it, it, you can translate the, the word the, the kenosis as sort of emptying self-emptying self-contraction self-concentration you know and and Paul uses this this word to kind of describe hey when the sun becomes incarnate this happens this kind of this kind of mysterious thing happens in which the sun empties himself into the form of a human being mm-hmm well reminds us points out very correctly i think that that remember um the very act of begetting the sun itself is a kenotic act
0: oh oh that's good oh I'm isn't bad. that cool
1: yeah. and, and he, he he said that in the 30s you know like like he this is like this is like you know, X number of years before Moltmann was ever talking about kenotic trinitarian, whatever. Like, right. like bolgetkov as an Eastern theologian, is like, well, the Father is kenotic too. Like, like the Father does things kenotically. You know, uh, that within the triune life is this sort of constant self-emptying and self-generation
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. out of
1: love. Like that's what he would say. He he says uh, he. he Borrowing the language of Revelation, he's like, "Remember, Golgotha is the foundation of the world, hmm. um, uh, and, and and what is happening on the cross is merely the finite version of what is happening in in the Godhead, the the self giving, you know, the constant self giving, even to the point of death, and uh, and and it's interesting. I like Bulgakov. I think yeah, he's he's yeah. pretty sophisticated." I understand, but any at any given moment, I understand about sixty-five percent of Bogekov, <laughs> because a lot of times I'm like, "What the hell are you talking about?" But uh, but he's another one that has a really robust theology. Anyway, hmm. we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, but yes, that uh, for Bogekov, who who does not believe the Spirit uh, proceeds from the Son and the Father, this is deeply important, be because. Um, to hit for him, this is what maintains the integrity of the Trinity. Oh, and so okay. and so, if the Father and the Son are both responsible for the Spirit, it becomes very difficult to a speak of the monarchy of the Father
2: mm-hmm.
1: as as God's apathetic abyss. Right, that's sort of the way Bogeckov um, and and. The eastern tradition tends to see the father um and it becomes difficult to speak of the spirit as having integrity as well as as its own procession that that comes out of the monarchy of the father um and volgekov would say it also obscures the sun right you know like, like it obscures the sun as, as the word, as, as having its own integrity, uh, you know, as, as a true kind of aspect of the Trinity. And so, like, I, I tend to be convinced, uh, by that, but it's also, to me, not terribly important.
0: (laughs) Okay, okay. Yeah, so I, I find all this, this conversation fascinating, but also not necessarily, practical, you have to work to kind of make it practical, like it's beautiful to contemplate, but it's not on the ground. So what do we we think uh, it looks like when a Christian encounters the spirit or is like filled with the spirit? Because that's a lot of, um, a lot of Pentecostal theology is going to be like, you need to be sanctified by the spirit, the spirit needs to be in you, and the spirit produces these particular gifts. What's your understanding of what how we are
1: changed by the Spirit. Um, I'm glad you asked, because I so this is in my as I've become a pastor, this is I think been the most um, pronounced transformation in my own personal theology. Mm-hmm. Um, is my my turn towards the Spirit and towards sanctification. So, it's uh, to me if a, if a human being is filled with the Holy Spirit we see evidence that they are filled with the Holy Spirit in um, the ways in which their life uh, produces uh, fruit you know I'm, I'm purposefully using a biblical term for this like mm-hmm. produces the fruits of the spirit like like the virtues if you will um, and the way in which the shape of their lives and and the contours of the way their heart works, and the way the you know the things they desire, and 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 the the habits that are developed, the way all of those things um, begin to reflect and be in alignment with uh, the character of Jesus Christ, and so for me, like holiness, sanctification, when the Spirit dwells within us, um, is really a Christo form kind of a thing like the the spirit the spirit um uh transforms that's what it means i think for the holy spirit to be in our our lives or dwell within us the spirit transforms us um in really practical and fundamental ways and and i would say that that as that happens when that happens it it kind of naturally leads to um Really important encounters and experiences uh, with uh, God, you know, and that that part of that transformation also includes uh, religious experience, mm. you know, with God. Um, there, there is a, a some really interesting work in Wesleyan thought and, and some different Wesleyan theologians uh, call uh, surrounding what what is called orthopathy. And so there is um, in, you know, in, in Christian doctrine, we've got orthodoxy, which, which means right belief, mm-hmm. uh, orthopraxy, which means right practice. And at Wesley, everybody loved orthopraxy. It's like, orthopraxy is the best. I'm like, it's super important. I agree. Uh, and then in certain Wesleyan and Methodist circles, there's this development of orthopathy, which means right experience. hmm um what would it mean for our uh encounter and experience of God mediated by the Holy Spirit to be correct or good you know or or um truthful you know what I mean
2: yeah yeah and
1: and uh i'm I'm actually quite interested in that personally i'm I'm interested in orthopathy I, I think that that's a unique genius it's not that other parts of Christianity don't don't have that, but I think that's a unique element to Wesleyan thought that, that we kind of reflect on, we assume that a religious experience should happen, and we reflect on, on what would make that religious experience good. Like, what would uh-huh. make that uh, not just valid? Sometimes we like to think that, about the orthos as valid, like orthodoxy is valid belief. Well, no, orthodoxy is good belief, correct belief, right belief fitting belief. Um and it's the same thing with this. And so I often reflect on on the, the work of the spirit when one is when the spirit is dwelling in a person or in a body or or in a, a church. Um, those things are in place. This this christoform transformation, this this transformation in in, in which our mind becomes the mind of Christ and, the, and our church body becomes the body of Christ. Um, and this facilitation of, of orthopathy, uh, this facilitation of good and fitting and right experience of God uh, yeah. to, to connect us.
0: Yeah, I like that. Um, our entropy episode is going to come out after this episode, so I think they'll kind of fit together well. Uh, I think about all this like as a going from the 30,000 feet view to come back down to the ground. um, We live in this, in this fallen world, in this world of decay. And so we need this world that's subject to entropy, right? That it's going to fall apart unless something actively puts in energy to hold it together. And so I think about um, the spirit when we ourselves uh, commit to following christ to um to interacting with god routinely right when we do this this christian life we become people where the the things inside of us that would naturally enter in an entropy kind of way as a metaphor um decay are held back up by the spirit are sustained by the spirit and those are all of like the good and true and real things in the world right like uh, we would have, in this world, we would have a tendency to fall away from love and to fall away from kindness and fall away from peace and justice and all this kind of stuff. But when we have the spirit dwelling in us, the spirit is counteracting that that almost natural decay that you find in humans.
1: That's a good connection to that.
0: Thanks. I was real proud of it. That's so I had to say it. Um, yeah. 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 I, I think that... Uh, Listeners, we would need to do like another mini history lesson about um, the beginnings of the Pentecostal movement in, in North America first, but you know, as it spreads throughout the world, because that is, there is a historical reason why there's this pivot to focusing on what the spirit is doing and, and sanctification and instantaneous sanctification and and this re-emphasized focus on, like, speaking in tongues or, like, in the mountains in Appalachia, handling snakes and stuff like that. That's a whole other, that's a, a whole other branch of Christianity that uh, is outside of both of our experiences, I think I can safely say. So, yes. uh, and that, I think when people think of the spirit and they think of being filled with the spirit, they think of that, um, what we experience is like modern-day Pentecostalism, uh, or like even like evangelicals might say something like that, um, but I, I I like the way that we've presented it that um, the spirit isn't necessarily as bombastic <laughs> as it seems to be in, in some of the more more modern North American presentations of it. Does that seem fair? I think it does. I don't know where we go from there.
1: <laughs> um, I I have an, a thought. Are are you ready? Yeah. Um, so there's this. I, I've talked about her before on the podcast. There's a a British theologian named Sarah Coakley. Right. And and she's very great. I uh, and, and often writes in an accessible style. So if anybody is interested in reading Sarah Coakley, you, you should read her. And she has a book called God, Sexuality, and the Self. Um which is a book uh, uh, on it's actually a book on trinitarian theology and and her thing in that book is that she is sort of mining a few sources but one of the sources she's mining are the uh certain new testament texts uh they're usually Pauline texts that um are uh that have a a a kind of a an implied different role for the spirit in that that uh, then what we see in a lot of Western theology, in which the spirit is sort of connected to um, the incorporation of the believer into the triune life uh, through desire. Yeah, so, I
0: remember talking about
1: this. Yeah, yeah, and so there's a sense in certain contemporary Western uh, the Pneumatologies and Theologies of the Spirit where the Spirit is sort of paired with um, I don't want to say sexual desire um, necessarily. Coakley does some really interesting work in kind of correlating those things and, and talking about uh, what is going on in, in the human desire for sex and, and how we might find a, a kind of a kinship in, in the Holy Spirit and stuff like that. But, um, but the spirit is sort of connected to, um, I would say, ecstatic experiences mm. and, and um, experiences of transcendence and, and, and awe, as you might say, Joe, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and, and therefore a kind of an experience of desire. Gregory of Nyssa is one of the people she pulls from where Gregory of, Nyssa, Gregory of Nyssa's theology is often about desire. You know, what are the desires of the human heart and, and, and how is it that, that the spirit or, or the Godhead, um, woos creation? Mm. You know what I'm saying? And, and Coakley, Coakley's work is really, is contemporary and, and she does some really interesting work at, at, at being like, well, you know, maybe that's, maybe that is one of the, the roles of the spirit that, that is often, um silenced in western theology because we're a bunch of prudes often yeah (laughs) um where where perhaps the spirit uh comes upon us and she she takes seriously certain pentecostal groups because of that certain charismatic groups um who who describe these kind of being slain in the spirit right like (laughs) like Mm -hmm. the spirits come upon me and i'm like woo. Oh, hallelujah. You know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Coakley takes that very seriously and, and says, well, you know, this, this is actually in in a sense really in line with this work that I'm doing that, that perhaps one of the things the spirit does is, um, uh, um, draw upon our desires and, and open us up in, in this kind of way. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, that, that, that is a good, um, reframing of my earlier comment that i yeah like i i fully believe that ecstatic experiences are are true can be true religious experiences and that there is um that that when we shut ourselves off to that whole breadth of experience as embodied humans who who can react in these ways then we're really cutting off part of a way that god desires to interact with us and i think that there's. I think there's something really profound about a religious experience that I, that doesn't just engage what you perceive to be your mind or what you perceive to be your spirit, but like the entirety of your being, which includes your body. Like I think that's that's something that's really true. Um, but I also feel that those experiences um, come out of uh, they're either spontaneous gifts of God or they are the product of um, of long meditation, not necessarily meditation of, of sitting still and holding a posture and emptying your mind of things, but of like meditation upon God and upon the works of God and, and all of the ways that we can interact with God. So there's, um, I don't know, there's a lot of people in the world who, uh, want to talk about, uh, the spirit and want to talk about mysticism, and I just don't know that, um, that all of the, the people who desire mysticism these days are people who are doing the work of being a mystic.
1: Like uh, Richard Rohr.
0: Oh, no. You can't come after Richard Rohr.
1: Do you like Richard Rohr or
0: something? I, uh, I, I am often on the fence about Richard Rohr, but a lot of people get a lot of nourishment from Richard Rohr. Why are you going to throw Richard Rohr into the bus?
1: Nick is is uh reading um one of his books right now and and just constantly tells me how much he hates it.
0: <laughs> well that's Nick.
1: That is Nick and I I love my dear friend but he <laughs> uh I forget well, I forget the name of the book he's reading. Oh, The Universal Christ. That's the book he's reading. Oh,
0: yeah, The Universal Christ is not your not your best place to start with him.
1: Right. Nick's like Nick's like it's as if some old white guy had the the Vedas or or the Vedanta read to him once while he was not thinking clearly and then said I've discovered a new religion and I'm like well you know I don't know maybe
0: you know I uh, get that um I get that criticism that's uh I'll let him have that that's fair <laughs> but like um how do I want to say this there's I. <sighs> Richard Rohr presses that button for people of like. There's more to Christianity than than just showing up on Sunday and then than just doing things. That there are actual practices that you can be doing to deepen your uh, interaction with God. And I, like, I don't think that he's doing it uh, with a uh, with falser or misunderstanding motives. Like, I think that he actively tries to engage in in mystical practice. Um but the universal christ is uh, you know nicks probably right on that 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 checks out. Um because uh, uh, being a uh, engaging in in mystic, mystic practices doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to come out with a clear and robust theology. <laughs> The other side of it, there is. I mean, like I, I think so much about Thomas Aquinas and and his vision at the end of his life, where he says that everything he's written is straw, and that like somebody who has spent the entirety of his life trying to come up with a with a clear theological explanation and and just comprehensive understanding of God, and then realizes that like there is so much more, and it can't be expressed. Um, Like, I I think about that a lot when I think about people trying to to lay down theological things, that we always have to leave space for that that apathetic mystery piece of it. And it doesn't lend itself to being written down well. And I think that uh, part of... Part of... How I understand the spirit to to work in sanctification and and in, in all this kind of stuff is helping to lead us deep into that deeper understanding of God. Like like as Gregory says in like the life of Moses, that it's Moses inner our, in our encounters God in the burning bush and encounters God in light and in the pillar of fire and cloud. But like where Moses really actually encounters god or gets to that like deeper level of god is going up on the mountain to get the commandments where it's it's darkness like it's right right you're not seeing anything and um and i think that like the spirit is the one that emboldens us and leads us into that place of um deeper understanding that is that is darkness instead of something bright
1: yeah Yes, yes, I agree. Um that's really powerful. I David Bentley Hart, I, Nick and I were just talking about this last night when he was complaining about Richard Rohr.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But but David Bentley Hart in his book, uh The Experience of God, um is reflecting on uh encounters of God and like what you know the the history of Christian and and Hindu and Jewish and and you know, what have you, all kinds of religious encounters with divinity. And uh, he says that, that the thing that the mystics have in common, and, and, and this is true very much in the Christian tradition and in others, is um, when, when mystics encounter the divine, the first thing that they, across the board, say they experience is clarity.
2: Hmm.
1: You know? Oh, sure. Like Saint John of the Cross also throws up. You know, and, <laughs> and 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 everybody like, or or like, I think Saint Teresa of Avila is like bedridden for like a week afterwards. You know, like like all this stuff. But but the first thing that they experience across the board that they say they experience is clarity. They they go, of course. It's so simple. It's all right there. You know what I mean? Yep. And uh and, and I think that's deeply in line with with what we say the spirit does. You know, the spirit doesn't bring uh confusion. Mystery is not really confusion.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what
1: I mean? Like like I think I think that's how you spot like like uh, snake oil, right. you know, in our in our profession, right? Like in what we do. Like you spot you can spot snake oil by, by folks saying that, uh, you know, they're, they're giving you something that, that helps you see how complicated it all is. I don't know. Like, like you go, Oh my gosh, it's all so big. And I'm so, you know, what's really real, you know, wow. What an experience. I'm like, well, remember the first, the first thing that the mystics have said over 2000 years in our tradition is that they encounter clarity you know the, that that it becomes obvious the love of god is clear you know yeah. the 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 character of god is clear yes it's still that dazzling darkness right that that the areopagite says god is god is one dazzling darkness you know like it's still that but it's also clear it's also obvious like there there god is you know
0: yeah i like that i do too Well, will you sign us off?
1: Yes. Friends, this has been uh, an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe, and we will see you next time.
0: You know, like, I can just tell that, like, I'm grouchy about this, but I'll get over
2: it.